take a network break. This is our last episode for 2021, so you may want to stuff your cheek pouches with a few extra virtual donuts to tide you over until we return in 2022. In the meantime, we've got stories on Broadcom, a new firewall service from Cloudflare, new product announcements from Ariaka and Aruba, and more. Sponsored today by Juniper Network's Appstra. Appstra's intent-based solution simplifies the deployment, operations, and management of your data center network from day zero through day two. It delivers automation and continuous validation of your data center network in multi-vendor environments, so you save on downstream costs and exponentially more value from your network investments. You can find out more at juniper.net slash packet pushers slash Appstra. Stick around after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation about how Palo Alto Networks is integrating chat ops into its SD-WAN platform so you can get SD-WAN performance and operational information via chat apps like Microsoft Teams. Pretty cool, that, by the way. Yeah, the idea that you can send out a query on a chat and uh, get an intelligent response back saying network working or something. Like, that's it's the most simplest part, but it's actually going quite a bit deeper, but it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. So take mm. a listen. Uh, and finally, if you like Network Break, we have a bunch of other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, and Heavy Strategy. It's tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, let's jump into the news. ASIC maker Broadcom has announced it's going to acquire AppNeta. AppNeta offers a SaaS service that monitors network and application performance. They play in the digital experience management or DEM space. The purchase price was not disclosed. AppNeta is going to be slotted into Broadcom's software division, which also includes network monitoring software they acquired from CA Technologies and Symantec's enterprise security business. Which is interesting because you don't think of Broadcom as a software company or particularly yeah. having a software business. And yet they do. And I think actually we've had them on, we've talked about them at various times, but their acquisitions were not necessarily strategic or generating change. We sort of more picked them out as being cash flow generation is what I thought right. we picked them out as. Yeah. Right. Um, but AppNet has got a great product. Digital experiencing monitoring is a whole, like a real thing in, in 2022 because everybody's at remote locations. They're not in offices on guaranteed, you know, on legacy MPLS services with guaranteed bandwidth and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And DEM means that you can put agents on remote nodes and start to see what is the actual user performance. So you can actually see what each user is doing. And that's pretty much you know, a critical thing when people are on the wrong side of an SD-WAN connection or working from home, you know, where you've got variable or, you know, even as people distribute further and further around the world. So it's got a great product and it's had a great reputation. They've been a long-time supporter of the packet pushes. Uh, so sort of seeing them go to Broadcom, which has got a reputation of cash or what we think of as cash extraction, does it turn around the way you see Broadcom software, Drew? Well, that's what I was wondering because I, I think it's a great pickup for Broadcom because the APM or DEM space is doing very well right now, uh, mm. as you mentioned, because organizations are grappling with remote work and it's probably going to continue to grow. But Broadcom is not the home I would expect for this. As you mentioned, like their software portfolio strikes me as sort of like a retirement home for old software programs where you're just extracting mm. existing licensing revenue and not doing much to keep them up or advance them. And mm. AppNeta does not strike me as that kind of organization. They are continuously, you know, building out the product, developing the product. They're sort of more spry and active. Uh, so I wonder, does this mean Broadcom software division is going to be become more prominent, more aggressive, more forward-looking yeah. in, in a way in its strategy? That's That's my question. I mean, they are into, they call themselves, the Broadcom software is infrastructure software and security software, they claim. Uh, and when they say infrastructure software, what it actually means is semantic, which is enterprise security, uh, a product called Arcot, which is payment security. They used to have an agent um, that was widely used by banks, which checked that your browser was secure and safe like that. 
my personal experience of Arcot was it broke my browser more often than not. <laughs> I wasn't particularly happy with it, but there you go. Um, maybe it's, you know, I, I, maybe the product has moved on since then. But they've also got a big mainframe portfolio. They have a whole portfolio of products around the mainframe where they do DevOps and AI. And, they, and, and I mean, I must say the software website is a bit vague about the actual products they have. I don't know if you've tried to read it, but I did end up sort of going in circles going like, uh, not 100% sure there's actually any products here. So maybe it's a future strategy. Um, but I do wonder if maybe what they've done then is to buy these legacy products, so capitalised, you know, the assets that they've acquired to generate cash flows. And those cash flows will now be used to build a software business from a base. So you can point to, you know, if you just acquired AppNetter and said, well, we're now in this business, would you have credibility? But if you can point to a portfolio of software that's cash generating and say, now we have this does that give you greater credibility, perhaps? I'm not sure. I mean, if I was at Netta and I was like, hey, hey, we're moving in. Our roommates are Symantec Enterprise Business and CA Technologies. I'd kind of be like, oh. This- oh, <laughs> exactly. CA Technology oh. mainframe. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it. not, it's not the, you know, the forward edge of where we are in, in the industry at this moment. So again, AppNet has got a good product. Uh, yeah. And so my assumption is Broadcom sees an opportunity to become more of a presence and more of a player at sort of the forward edge of where we're going with software as opposed to just mm. using Does existing products to get the semantic? license revenue. Do they add the DEM features into the semantic virus client? Maybe, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Mm, we'll but, see. Y- I mean, yeah, I, go ahead. There were no, you know, uh, I was reading their financial results. There was nothing particularly outstanding in the results enough to actually generate an article around it. But they did give away some insights into their networking revenue was $1.9 billion, which is up 13% year on year in line with our forecast for low double-digit growth and represented 34% of our semiconductor revenue. And that's interesting to me in that networking ASICs is 34% of their semiconductor revenue, which means it's mm-hmm. much bigger than I thought in terms of determining Broadcom's core business. But the other one that struck me was um, their server storage connectivity revenue, that's Fibre Channel, was $815 million, up 21% year on year. <laughs> Good old fire uh, channel. That's a narrative failure right there. Uh, <laughs> and he went on to talk about the fact that people, uh, enterprises have returned to buying fiber channel NICs and arrays. And so there's been increased demand by storage vendors <laughs> as well as other companies in that space. Really interesting. And then the other one, of course, was Wi-Fi is the other 30%. Mm-hmm. It was about 30%. I didn't realize the Wi-Fi and the networking was like uh, so big in terms of that. So enterprise, yeah. the enterprise networking space is absolutely core for Broadcom. So perhaps this software thing is, you know, a way to defray the risk of being stuck in ASICs and stuck around hardware and start to add to that software business. I guess something we'll just have to keep looking for. Yeah, I think when they initially announced the CA and semantic acquisitions, that's what we thought, that this was a way to uh, insulate them from ups and downs in the semiconductor market. Um hmm and do it safely with, you know, established products that were getting that license revenue may not be, uh, you know, going gangbusters in terms of growth, but we're stable. And so maybe they feel like they've done that and now they can look to AppNeta to help drive them forward in the software, in the software business. We'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll have to watch this. Yeah. It'll be just, it's odd, right? It just doesn't seem it to is. fit. It doesn't sit right. It, yeah. It doesn't fit with the narratives that we might expect. And is that our fault? Is there something there, you know, and with the time of the research that, we've, that I've done, I can't, I'm sort of a bit baffled. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. And maybe if AppNeta comes back, we'll, uh, you know, after the acquisition, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Or if you've got insider uh, commentary, you can always hit us up packetpushes.net slash FU. We'd love to get your input. Hmm. 
All right, moving on. Microsoft Azure recently announced new capabilities in its Sonic Network OS, including a new way to support dual top-of-rack switches without the use of MLAG and an option to program Sonic from a centralized controller using P4. So apparently yeah. the new... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say this was this article is actually a couple of weeks old, and I think uh, I even called it out in him uh, in our newsletter a couple of weeks ago and said this is worth reading. And I just stumbled across the webpage because I hadn't closed it out because, you know, you don't close all the tabs in your browsers all the time. <laughs> and um, this one, I think I read it and went like, that's really cool. But I think I wanted to talk about this some more. What they've done here is they've actually put a, um, a Y cable which is the patch lead that goes from the top of rack switches down to the um, server. And in that Y cable, they've actually put a microcontroller and a hitless MUX. Mm -hmm. And the intelligence sits in the sonic top of rack switches so that if either of the switches goes down, the server trans uh, seamlessly fails over from switch A to switch B. This is So there's a cooperation between the switches and the NIC and only one is active at any one time, I think. It's not entirely clear from the article if it's a MUX, but the suggestion is that it's not load balancing, but they manage the MUXing inside the smart cable to determine the traffic path for the server and handle failover rapidly. Now, that is not something we've historically seen. Right. It does strike me as interesting if you, you, know, you, you don't want to mess around with MLAG for whatever reason, but you still want dual top of rack switches and some kind of high availability or failover. Hmm. Now you've got, I guess, what they're calling a smart cable, air quotes included. Well, if you think about it, the thing about MLAG or multi-chassis lag is it's an extremely complicated technology. You have to right. signal between the two adjacent chassis and then the switch on the other side. And there's no connectivity between them. They're, they're what's called an open loop service. That is, they both all four parts of that service assume that nothing is known. And it also requires two NICs and two switches. So this simplifies the cost from two NICs to one switch to one nick, puts the automation for the failover, the detection and everything into the cable itself, right? And then this and and the cable works with the switches. Now that removes the nick from the switch dependency. So it's just the switch and the cable. That's a lot easier to program and maintain and to do the polling to detect path failure. And they note in the actual blog post that there's a 2% chance from their research, a 2% chance of suffering a failure within three months of deployment. In a switch. In a switch. Yeah. So now this is something most engineers who've had um, a decade or two of brutal experience know <laughs> that when you deploy a switch, it's going to break in the first six to 12 weeks if it's going to break at all. Generally after that, they sort of seem to just run on forever. That's not a perfect story, but 2%, that's one in 50, right? And if you've got mm -hmm. a rack with 20, so it, in a row of 20 racks, you'll have 50 switches. So you're going to lose one of those in the first three months guaranteed, is basically what this is saying. So you have to plan for it. And they're also saying 32%. They said of the 2%, 32% of failures are hardware-related and 20% to unplanned power outages. Now, is that a power out or a power failure? I don't know. But this idea of having dual top-of-rack switches is really interesting, but more importantly, not making the server a part of the integration. So it's just a networking feature. So the server doesn't have to have multi-channel lag installed, doesn't mm -hmm. have to have two NICs, doesn't have to have the coordination. It's just being done in the switch and the cabling. That's really smart thinking, I think. Yeah, they're putting some of the responsibility uh, for managing 
this high availability or failover onto the Sonic NOS, which is running on the switches themselves, as well as the microcontroller multiplexer that's inside that cable. Though I also wonder now, are you creating a single point of failure in that cable if the microcontroller goes out, for instance? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> like, you know, if the NIC goes, yes, you've got a single point of failure there. But the point here is that it's not the servers that are failing. The data mm -hmm. isn't saying the servers are what fails on a predictable basis. It's the switches that fail. And therefore, this is the solution that addresses most of the problem, probably a trade-off with price. I imagine that if the enterprise gets a hold of this, they'll start asking, you know, our branded vendors to start implementing this in this in their products. And I imagine the networking vendors would be very keen to do this because more expensive cabling, more, ex you know, new feature for switches and more expensive cabling. So instead of it, the money going to the server vendor, it goes to the networking company. <laughs> so That's there's a motivation. Definitely an opportunity. Yes, for yeah. sure. There's a self-motivation. <laughs> yeah, my assumption yeah. is that this is generally targeted at hyperscalers at the moment because they're the ones using Sonic, but I suppose it is something that could find its way into the data center of the enterprise. That should, yes. I don't believe that uh, servers need dual NICs. I don't think it's NICs that's failed. I think it's usually switches. But in this case, they're pointing out the power failures here. So if you have the two top of rack switches on redundant power and you lose one power rail, you don't lose the switches. So it's it's a much more holistic look at the problem, I think. Yeah. Uh, this blog also noted that Sonic's working with something called the PINS community, P-I-N-S. Uh, that stands for the P4 Integrated Network Stack. Uh, so essentially, you can build a software-defined network with a controller uh, that will control Sonic switches using P4 as the programming language. Yeah, P4, of course, it continues to sort of wander around. It's a bit like blockchain. It's a technology that's looking for a, for a solution. You know, sorry, it's a, let me take that back. It's a solution solution looking for a problem to solve. And there's lots of potential problems, but I think to date most people have sort of gone like, mm. but I think increasingly there are emerging use cases for specific. You don't want to P4 all the traffic, but it comes back to where we were with OpenFlow at the very earliest generations with, and even with Quas policies today. Uh -huh. What we do with Quas, what we do in the early days of OpenFlow was we want to modify 10 to 20% of the traffic flows to do something non-standard or unusual with them and p4 is there for that so you use your stuff most of your traffic just does something normal follows the bgp or follows the evpn path and um this then allows me to override that for some reason that i might want to whether that's monitoring you know where i'm doing like in-band telemetry where i want to tag one in a hundred packets so that i can do some in-band telemetry or something like that Right. And again, I think this is primarily targeted at the hyperscalers who are rolling their own, you know, SDN controllers and are comfortable with P4 programming, which is complex in general. Uh, so not necessarily, again, yes. enterprise directed, but interesting I, to see I, Sonic continuing to, see, to push its capabilities. Yeah. And we've talked about that. We I expect to see most of the innovation happening in enterprise data centers will trickle down from the cloud providers. It won't be the same. It'll be a rather selective, a bit like uh, what happens in Formula One trickles down to normal cars. <laughs> Right. But not really, right? <laughs> Some things do, but a few do, but not others. So, Right. All right, link in the show notes if you want to check out the blog for yourself. We'll move on. At Cloudflare, they've announced a new stateful inspection firewall service as part of its zero trust offering. The firewalls essentially reside in Cloudflare POPs, so traffic needs to be directed to those POPs. That could happen from a client agent on a device, a Cloudflare WAN service, or an MPLS connection. And the idea is rather than deploying hardware firewalls at your branch locations or even on campus, you can use the Cloudflare service. 
Yeah, I, I this uh, looks like a great idea. The idea is already, of course, as once traffic goes into the Cloudflare network, they're already a content delivery network. They really just had to keep developing their software to do more and more to it to be able to add features, and that's why we've mm-hmm. seen them uh, adding a basic firewall, what was it, a year ago? At layer three, then they added layer four, then they started to add application inspection engines. Uh, and what they're saying here is now, not only are we bringing up the uh, uh, in application inspection firewall, um, but we're also starting to bring up zero trust integration as well. So it's sort of an iteration of this product going through. And every time they breathlessly announce that they've just conquered the universe, which is a little tiring to, to waffle through. Um, I, I think this is, I think Cloudflare has really got something here. Um in the sense that if you're using Cloudflare, then they're just adding incremental features to their product. It's yes. not going to replace your firewalls unless your firewalls happen to be in the public WAN space, right? So if you put a firewall at the edge of your network and you're using it to control inbound traffic for like email and web services and things like that, then it'll replace that firewall because Cloudflare is in that location. It can get in between those traffic flows. Uh, but if you've got a firewall inside your public cloud or, uh, you know, inside your enterprise, not so much. So not right, exactly right, right. going to. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, not inside your perimeter, uh, but more, you know, as traffic's leaving a branch office or coming into your campus, that that's when you can insert this Cloudflare service. Yeah. Yes. So it's got the advantages of capacity because if it's in the cloud, then they can scale it horizontally. And obviously, Cloudflare have actually made it into a, because it's a CDN feature, or that's how I think of it. Obviously, uh, normal firewall vendors have completely failed to make scaling, auto-scaling of their products. Why can I not put five of their firewalls together and get a load balancing across it without having mm-hmm. to use third-party load balancers? I should be able to. Why not, right? Downtime is an issue. Cloudflare has a continuous deployment model. They just continually update it. Um, we haven't seen them fail too often. They do have an outage from time to time, but nothing particular, no more or no less than an enterprise. As we know with AWS, AWS keeps seems to go out fairly regularly lately, demonstrating that they've got no better at out time than an enterprise. But I do think the zero trust integration, now Cloudflare's zero trust is a bit thin on the ground, somewhat immature to my mind compared to other zero trust, but they do have all of the basic features there. So you can send traffic to it using GRE or IPSEC, that you can do application tunnels. In other words, send it in as a proxy or redirect it in a TLS tunnel. You can all, and they also have a range of direct device clients. So you can actually install a client onto your iPhone or Android or Windows right. and forward it in. So I think the value here for Cloudflare isn't the firewall. I, I actually think the feature set's a bit, mm, okay, not great. But if you've got already into the Cloudflare ecosystem, you know, like then, you know, if you're into that brand, then go. It, it works for me. That's exactly it. It's making a service you might already be using a little stickier, uh, taking over a little bit more of that account. Um, we're also seeing the SASE space, the cloud delivered security service space get very competitive. Uh, so this, you know, adds to mm. the panoply of choices you now have. Yeah, I, I, you know, the things that I'm thinking about that aren't here, because Cloudflare's tooting their horn quite strongly, and I'm thinking sort of, you know, protagonist, protagonistly to sort of say, what's missing? I would expect there's like no FTP support or, you know, things like that, the features that you might actually be using. But even so, even if you could offload most of your firewall traffic to a Cloudflare firewall and just keep a legacy firewall for the non-standard or the non-common protocols going forward, you could still have a very good solution out of this. 
I also think it, it highlights a trend we're seeing where there's a lot of pressure on the firewall at the branch as a market, a standalone market. We're seeing firewall capabilities being folded into SD-WAN in particular at the mm. branch. So, um, you know, you can just get rid of that device entirely by doing it as a service, yeah. which is the whole thing. I think that'd be known to say firewalls are like armpits. Everybody's got one. Right. right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, so Everybody it's not a big does. deal. It's not a feature really. Yeah. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to read about it. We'll move on. Ariaka has announced a new integrated managed SD-WAN and managed SASE service, there's that word again, as well as new lower-cost private network options. So the SASE service leverages the company's acquisition of SecuCloud, which it acquired in May of 2021, and it includes firewall as a service, threat detection, secure web gateway, and more features are coming in 2022. Yeah, Ariaka continues to baffle me, Drew. And I know you got the briefing, so you're going to be in a better position to understand this. But as I understand it, as a result of this announcement, they now have three products, our Ariaka Prime Easy, Ariaka Smart Connect Pro, and Ariaka Smart Connect Easy. And the two products marked Easy appear to be the SecuCloud product, and the Smart Connect Pro seems to be the legacy Ariaka product or the previous product. And it, they both pitch the Easy products as low cost and make a big deal about the fact that the Ariaka Smart Connect Pro is actually a Layer 2 core and the new products are a Layer 3. So it feels to me like they've acquired this new company, rebadged it and said, well, hey, we've now got two sets of infrastructure, so we'll sell them as two different products. We're going to price the new one at a lower price point because Ariaka has always been far more expensive than most of its competitors from what I've heard. And the fact is that they must be feeling the pinch here. They must be losing deals and hence they're going into the low end or lower, lower down into the market. Yeah, so when Ariaka first came out, part of their service was managed WAN, which ran on private leased fiber. Uh, and that's the L2 service you recommended. And that's their, mm. I guess, what they would call their premium tier. Uh, this new, uh, uh, what they're calling L3 service is a lower cost option. Uh, and it's not running on private fiber. They're just uh, essentially pulling together a bunch of point to point ISP connections from local yeah, ISPs doing what to connect else up is their pops. Yeah, right. just doing right. instead of hauling it onto their private backbone, which is expensive yes. and hard to scale and. You know, not it. A lot of people just sit there and say, "I just want an SD WAN." You know, mm -hmm. why do I want a premium SD WAN? Why not just use? And a lot of people get all the benefits they need out of just, you know, Cisco's just had one of its biggest quarters ever for SD WAN sales. That doesn't seem to have affected them. Right. I think that's exactly it. That if that premium price puts you off, then Ariaka now can come back and say, "All right, well, we've got this, and you can still get SD WAN. Mm. You can still get SASE, and it's just gonna. It's not gonna run on our private backbone, but you will." have this, mm. uh, all the security and, and SD-WAN capabilities. Well, Ariaka used to be a managed WAN acceleration service. That was their big, that was what they were, before SD-WAN became a thing. They were actually out mm -hmm. there with a, a managed sort of cloud-based managed WAN acceleration service. Really struggled to get that to sell until SD-WAN came along. But I still think that they're trying to catch up. I don't feel like Ariaka has managed to make a transition to stay ahead of the SD-WAN. Silverpeak did a, did a smarter job. And this idea of having your own proprietary backbones kind of running against the trend, I think, a little? I guess it depends. I mean, Ariaka could argue that, you know, because we control this this private lease fiber, we can ensure great quality of service, great performance for mission-critical applications. And I think that's why they would charge the premium yeah. price for it. And some customers would like that, and they feel that guarantees make a difference, even though what we know is that most people just find that the internet works just fine without any guarantees. I mean, there's always a subset of customers who just don't want the hassle of installing mm. appliances and having to manage it themselves, and they're happy to pay the, the yeah. overhead for a service. So that's where well, our lives. Well, you know, we always joke that enterprise pricing doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> they're always willing to pay someone to do it in a more expensive way. So That's right. 
All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more. We'll take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Juniper Appstra. They have an intent-based solution that simplifies deployment, operations, and management of your data center network from day zero through day two, delivers automation and continuous validation of your network in multi-vendor environments. You get downstream cost savings and you get more value from your network investments. They set up the network based on your business requirements to ensure the network is provisioned accurately and they alert you when deviations occur. This automated validation process eliminates human errors that can lead to security vulnerabilities because of misconfiguration. They also optimize day two operations so you get enhanced visibility, intent-based analytics, root cause analytics that helps you quickly identify and resolve issues, which dramatically reduces your mean time to resolution. And their multi-vendor support provides vendor abstraction required to effectively manage a heterogeneous vendor environment. This removes the steep learning curve of learning multiple management tools. It eliminates tool proliferation and reduces the complexity of deploying data center equipment. As a result, Appster provides up to 80% improvements in operational efficiency, 70% improvements in MTTR, and 90% improvements in time to deliver. Customers using Appster include Yahoo, T-Mobile, and Belastic. You can find out more at juniper.net slash packet pushers slash Appstra. Back to the news, Aruba Networks has announced a new Edge Connect micro-branch service that's targeting home offices and small offices with the goal of providing performance and security as if you were on campus. The way it works is you get a wireless AP at the location. Instead of putting client software on each endpoint, traffic from the client or clients goes through the AP, and then administrators can apply a variety of security and performance policies. Yeah, playing to Aruba's strengths here, their ability to produce hardware and to manage it from a central controller is obviously the core of Aruba's business model to date. So saying we're going to produce a product that looks just like what you already have been doing, you know, Wi-Fi, <laughs> yep. mixing up a little bit of uh, SD-WAN in there as well. Um, and that gives you the security. So you don't actually have to change the, the you know, might be suitable for companies who are deploying internet connections for their workers and then giving them the device and then giving them a laptop. And it's on a separate network, if you like. This is one of these gray areas where, do you get some sort of software and install it on your user laptops, on your staff laptops, and then let them use their home connection? Or some companies have said, no, we're going to deploy a separate set connection. And then these types of things start to come in. Because if I was a work, a home worker, I wouldn't want to be using my company supplied device to access, because then they'd start seeing all my personal stuff as well. <laughs> right. There is that issue. Mm. There is that issue. Um, and I should note that this isn't necessarily a new product. It's an existing Aruba AP. Any AP running Aruba AOS 10 or greater can provide this service. Um, and essentially, so it's got a stateful firewall on board to do basic security policies. It supports internet breakout. So if you want like a Zoom call to go to the Zoom cloud instead of being backhauled uh, or going through like a Zscaler service, which you can also integrate with this, uh, you can do that. Uh, it's not quite an SD-WAN service because it's just using one link uh, to, to make that connection. It's tying into essentially your home ISP. Although uh, Aruba says some of its APs do have, you know, a slot to run uh, mm. LTE on the back that you could use as a failover, but it's not a full, uh, you know, load balanced and high now, available SD-WAN. This yet. kind of feels like an executive thing. Like executives think they're really important and that they should have <laughs> different levels of service. And so giving them a dedicated internet connection paid for by the company and a dedicated device is somehow something, something, something. I don't know. But there's enough of that sort of approach to things that I, I'm a big believer that everything should be the same where, as far as possible. So I definitely feel there's a market for this. I'm not necessarily sure um, that it's going to be a huge market. And I guess one of the things about Aruba is that they've got, you know, able to make products for each niche in the market and, and unify them together under their, their, um, their, their, their controller software. 
Right. It is uh, all managed by Aruba Central, so you don't have to have an IT person, whether it's at a small office or just a home office sitting there mm. watching it. It's all coming back to Aruba Central, so you can do you know, policy and make changes and do troubleshooting from Aruba Central. I think that's part of the key aspect of it here, that it can be all remotely managed. Mm. And they can do things like, you know, they'll measure the the signal strength coming off the AP to troubleshoot problems for the home user, or they'll measure the performance between the AP and the ISP to get a sense of what performance looks like uh, for troubleshooting and when the user calls in to complain, hey, my my network is slow, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I, I, I do think, you know, a, obviously Aruba sees an opportunity with this remote or distributed work that's happening now. Um, they don't necessarily have the client piece that other options do, but they can say they're taking their an existing product and just sort of rebadging it as, yeah, yeah it's now supporting uh, home and remote work. It also sort of talks to the fact that a lot of SD-WAN doesn't actually a big deal these days. You don't need a custom device. You can just take an existing device and add the software to it. Snap again, it into your existing computer. It's not home SD-WAN because it doesn't have those two connections it can use uh, in a you know HA mode yet. Mm. Uh, maybe that'll come down the line. Um, and it's I'm curious about if, the policy, the policy right. routing. Yeah. It's policy and experience enforcement. Yeah, without yeah. having to have that client piece. Yeah, and it'll probably do local breakout. You know, sending right. this traffic to head breakout. office yeah, and this traffic just to the internet. So if you're doing Teams, don't send that to head office. Oh, but you're accessing the core line of business application, which is hosted, you know, Maybe you've got some Oracle or SAP in head office. We'll send the traffic down there and so forth. So, yeah. Right. And it can set up multiple IPsec mm. tunnels if you do need to get to data center yeah. or HQ applications, but you can also yeah, It sort do of feels like a VPN yeah. alternative. If you haven't sort of looked at the new software-defined perimeter tools, this would be the product that you might lean towards. I would yes. probably look at software-defined perimeter and decide whether that would be more effective. Although the pricing on that is eye-watering, so maybe this is good. Yeah. And as I mentioned, they are partnering with Zscaler. So if you want that, you know, uh, cloud-based security option, you can get that. And they say they're going to add more SASE partners uh, as they roll this out. For sure. All right. Uh, speaking of SD-WAN, uh, if the market continues to grow. There's a new report out from the Del Oro Group saying that global SD-WAN revenues grew 45% year over year for the third quarter of 2021. Uh, and the top six vendors uh, in the market account for almost 70% of that growth in uh, Q3 2021. Yeah, so obviously the time is coming for SD-WAN to consolidate around a few vendors, which everybody's been predicting for a long period of time. But as we've also flagged, anybody who was a successful SD-WAN vendor but saw the market converging has already jumped to the SASE train. And SASE is not SD-WAN for this definition, I think. Right. Um, so anybody who saw this coming has decided, yeah, okay, SD-WAN is now armpits. Everybody's got one. Then... Um, this they've jumped up to the SASE, whereas what they're saying here is the SD-WAN. Particularly, they called out that Cisco in the SD-WAN. Not too sure Cisco would be too pleased to be classified as SD-WAN revenue. They say that nearly doubled in th quarter three. Has to be said that Cisco's SD-WAN probably came off a very low base. They haven't been particularly successful. Other companies have been able to take market share from Cisco. Their transition's been a little rough for them. Um, and uh, the idea that it's consolidating is perfectly reasonable. To me, I think can't have, you know, dozens and dozens of vendors in the SD-WAN space, but I think we're going to have more than just a couple. There's plenty of room in the market for a diverse SD-WAN supplier base. Yeah. Um, so the they didn't name who they uh, the top six, according to them, for the market, but they did call out Cisco, VMware, and Fortinet as uh, leaders. Uh, they didn't mention mm -hmm. the other three in their top six, but we could probably make educated guesses about who those are. Yeah. Well, also, as we said, SASE is the thing here. Most of the companies who... You saw that coming, have jumped up to SASE, so they won't be covered by this report. If you want it, you'll have to go and pay money to Deloro to find out the details. 
Yeah. I have to say I'm a little surprised, though, by 45% growth uh, in this quarter because with offices closed and hybrid work happening, I wouldn't expect that kind of acceleration in SD-WAN because it's a product so focused on branch and remote offices. I'm wondering maybe it's not being driven by enterprise. Maybe it's more retail and manufacturing. I think it's a lot. Yeah, I think there's. I think it's diverse. You've got a lot of retail and manufacturing shifting up to SD-WAN instead of using private circuits. Now's the time to get it in for some of them because offices are closed and you can spend money. Money's cheap. So for companies that are financially established, like handling the pandemic okay and haven't been damaged and cash flows are still working, now is the time to do these things when demand on them is somewhat lower. I think also that SD-WAN is reaching the stage of uh, acceptance. So even yes. now, you know, what are we, eight years into the SD-WAN sort of emergence, now is when the momentum starts to build and everybody's heard about it and everybody around them is talking about it or starting to do it. And, you know, when the CIOs go to conferences, they get told that they should have done it already. And <laughs> so they stop objecting because somebody's told them that they should, you know, all that usual clown stuff. So, yes. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to finish up with a surfing dog story. Uh, there's a German man who slipped and broke his back walking from his bed to his home office. And apparently he can now claim workplace accident insurance. That's according to a recent German court ruling. <laughs> I love this. Uh, so, the, so you do need to know some background here. And that is that German workers do get a lot of protection from the government against their companies. So companies, but in this case, it's the insurance company saying, that the employer's insurance refused to cover the claim because he wasn't commuting, he wasn't at work. They found that his first morning journey from bed to the home office was not part of his work route. So, <laughs> And the German court has come up and said, clearly this is the case. And in fact, they said it is not clear if the man was working home due to the pandemic or had done so previously. The ruling said the law applied to teleworking positions, which are computer workstations that are permanently set up by the employer in the private area of the employee's. So the insurance policy apparently had a clause which said if computer workstations are set up inside of the people's homes provided by the company, then yes, he was commuting to work on the path between bed and the workstation, <laughs> which uh, I, don't know. I don't know. Yes, I guess. I, I mean, I technically it is a commute, right? Yes. He didn't sleep at his desk. He slept somewhere else and then went somewhere to go to his job. So yeah, I mean, this yeah. does kind of makes sense to me. I could see American insurance companies seeing this uh, result and react gasping in horror at what might be awaiting them, but, you know, mm. good, good for the German courts. Yeah, exactly. It is an interesting one. Um, I wonder what would happen if he had provided his own laptop. Would that not be commuting to it? <laughs> it's just, it's just one of these fascinating, you know, quirks of modern insurance, you know, and yes. potentially the insurance policy was written years ago and has never actually been you know, this was just never considered as something that might actually happen. They had an envisaged a home office or whatever. Who knows? Yes. Well, I'm glad at least uh, the German people are getting some protection uh, insurance-wise. Yeah. I sure hope he's he okay because if he broke his I back, it could be quite yeah, serious. That sounds so, awful. Yeah. It really yeah. does. Yeah. Hopefully he gets the carry needs. All right. Well, that does wrap up the episode. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto about its SD-WAN chat ops feature. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, we discuss a new chat ops feature in Palo Alto's SD-WAN product enabled by Cloudblades. We're joined by Sitapa Bansal. She is Director of Product Management at Palo Alto Networks. Sitapa, welcome to the show. Can you start us off with what, what do you mean by chat ops? So chat ops, something that enables the use of chat applications, such as Microsoft Teams or Slacks, to run development and operations. It enables easier access for customers to connect to their processes and tools. 
So this is kind of like, I mean, we've talked about chat ops a lot and we've heard a lot of vendors talk about it, but I've not really seen too much about it. So is this kind of like, help, something's broken type of thing, or is this much more like we're reaching the threshold? So is it a combination of alerts or is it something else? Is it more than just telling me that something's broken? I would say it's a combination. So customers Hmm. definitely can see what is happening in their environment. They can get visibility into it, but they can also use it for troubleshooting if they are seeing issues. So are you saying I could type a query into Microsoft Teams or Slack and get some kind of response about how my SD-WAN is operating? Absolutely. You can get information, not only how your SD-WAN network is operating, but also applications which are running on that network. So those sorts of questions, things like, is everything up? Or how's my bandwidth? Is it is it something like that? Yes, we do support queries around, you know, information, getting information about particular sites, uh, wandlings, applications, or even devices, right? So you may have multiple sites, you may have ordered multiple devices, and some of them you may have already provisioned, others you may have not. So this is more like there's a syntax. And if I want to query a particular, and if I frame up a query in a particular syntax at, at the, the chat, in your chat application, then you can get a response back saying something the state of something or status of something totally i think one of the interesting things about this is this is sort of like a an application of apis and normally what we have to do is we have to log in to the network tooling to be able to do something but in a chat app you can actually say these commands are okay to run and anybody can run them yeah so as you were saying right so traditionally admins they have to be logged into the network on premises or vpn and then they have to access the dashboards to get information just access for general information or if they have to troubleshoot incidents but with chat ops what they can do is they can get you know visibility right off where they are and if they have any issue they can uh, you know they have this flexibility they can do it on their mobile or uh, any place they might be so if I don't have easy access to my console where I want to log into uh, the UI and see what's going on, I can just pick up my phone, open a, a Slack or a, a Teams app and start getting information using these queries. Yes, it makes it so easy. I think it's interesting, too, because it also means the CIO can make queries, but you don't have to give him a login to the platform, which is important because then they might screw it up. Sorry, did I say that out loud? I mean, uh, the help desk could use it and have the appropriate level of access without having to train them. They could run a standard set of queries. You could put it in a run book. As you're saying, right, the other mm-hmm. angle with chat ops is few people would have access or the IT admins would have access to the dashboard. Mm-hmm. With chat ops, anybody who has access to that particular channel within, let's say, Microsoft chat ops or you know, later on, let's say, Slack, mm-hmm. they can get access to this information easily. So it does avoid, I think it avoids some of the learning curve too, because, you know, I don't have to learn the user interface of Palo, Sassy Wen, uh, you know, that whole graphical interface and know how it works. I could just consult a run book and a set of queries for most cases perhaps. So this, does this reduce escalation? Is Am I right with that logic and does it reduce escalation? Yeah, so with that logic, one is that because there is easier access to information. So whether it is admins or analysts, they can provide, uh, they can get awareness if there's an issue faster, Mm -hmm. and then they can also help resolve the issue faster. So I'm thinking, you know, faster mean time to innocence. Uh, I, I get an alert saying it's from an executive saying, why is my Zoom call so bad? Instead of having to log into the whole system and start to parse it out, I can just run a query and and get some information and find out, is it the network or not? Is that the idea? 
Ah, uh, yes, they have this easy access to information at their fingertips. So can you give us some examples of, of how uh, a network engineer or administrator might use this? One of the things that we have seen in our customer base many a times is that a particular branch office, such as, you know, US West, uh, may be experiencing intermittent uh, connectivity issues. So what I mean by that is that users are not able to access certain applications at their data centers and how the IT admins get awareness of this issue, it many a times it takes long time, right? Typically more than a few hours or even a day. Uh, and when they get awareness, then it takes them, they treat it as a SEV1 issue, right? Because of the typical SLAs. Mm. But with chat ops, now support staff, they can quickly access information even when they are not on site. And mm. even non-IT staff, right? They can help collaborate with the IT staff to resolve the issue faster. Now, the thing is that this uses your CloudBlades architecture and the CloudBlades architecture, is, which is mm, kind of like it's an app that's in the cloud. So Palo Alto has the, the SaaS platform for SD-WAN and in the cloud is the host where all of the, the management tools are there. And this ChatOps is a feature or an app that you can enable that runs on that platform. So the data that I can get from the chatbot then is basically whatever's in the platform that I can structure a query for. So I could do something like, are all my SD-WAN devices up? And it would come back with a yes, no. Is that how it works? It supports a lot of queries. It's not just yes and no's, right? So an mm. example, the, tip, the example that I was continuing, where the some users are experiencing issues, right? So they can even run queries such as, you know, show health site name. And this example, like show health uh, San Francisco site, mm. right? Yeah. Once they see, okay, whether this particular site is up or down, then they can use uh, additional chat commands such as, you know, show paths. Then they can get information on the quality of circuit, both overlays, underlays on that particular site. Okay, so I can get even more uh, insight than just up down is what you're saying. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. So it helps not only in just uh, faster issue identification, which your earlier thing would do, but also faster troubleshooting. Uh, is there another scenario where you can give us an example of, of how this chat ops feature works? Yeah, so if you think that users many a times in a branch office, they face network outages, right? And traditionally enterprises, they host their business critical applications in their data centers, which are connected using private WAN circuits such as MPLS. Now, IT admins in those scenarios, they depend heavily on service providers to troubleshoot WAN outages, which can be time consuming. But instead, with chat ops, it's easy to get insights into the outages and the IT, they can simply query such as, you know, show health alarms or events per branch site and WAN link to monitor such occurrences. So consider a scenario where in response to the chat query, an admin sees alarm which is like you know, network down for private. What that means is that all the data center sites connected uh, via this device are unreachable on the private fan. Using chat ops, now admins got this information and they can co co configure alternate paths in their application policies such as LTE if it is applicable. So using chat ops, they can get easy awareness of alarms and then collaborate to resolve issues faster. 
So Greg mentioned CloudBlades. Uh, does this mean, I, do I have to do a lot of integration to get this feature to work between Palo Alto platform and Teams or Slack or whatever, or does the CloudBlade do that for me essentially? CloudBlades essentially, it is an integration which is based on our you know API-based framework. The whole idea with CloudBlades is that it takes away the complexity that is uh, traditionally seen with the traditional approach to deploying new SD-WAN services, which was complex, right? right. So the earlier traditional way was that you deployed either new physical appliances or upgraded existing equipment, which of course caused service disruption. But what we are doing with CloudBlades and API-based framework is that, you know, it is easily seamlessly delivers these integrated services all around like ITSM with what we have done with ServiceNow and others that we can uh, talk later for cloud connectivity, mm -hmm. such as Azure, AWS and others. I just, I just really love this idea of being in my teams or you know and saying oh my site's up yes no or you know somebody comes to me and says so and so somebody says that they're having a problem in such and such so I say look I can say to the help desk person look I'm going to show you your command so you can query this yourself and you don't have to waste time coming to find me that just super <laughs> appeals to me in a way I, I can't tell you how excited that <laughs> Because I don't like talking to people and the less time I spend talking to people, the happier I am. And this sounds great for that. Absolutely. I was talking to one of the customers and I was uh, uh, talking to them that, you know, with chat ops, uh, if your users are having an issue with a particular application such as Zoom and, you know, the customer just jumped on his, he said, I can't tell you how many times I get this issue about a particular using having a bad call quality or mm -hmm. a choppy video. Mm -hmm. And that's what we shared with them, right? That with mm -hmm. chat ops, you can now quickly query even application level metrics like jitter, packet loss, latency on a per application for per van link with a simple command like, you know, show application LQM metrics. And you can easily help identify whether this particular issue is uh, application is having issue for this user or across users and then even remediate the issues by fine using your business policies. So this you said remediate there. So you're saying this chat this chat structure, the chat ops capability is not just a read only, which is like, is the circuit up? Is it performance above a certain level? Is, you know, that type of stuff. You're saying there's actually ability to take a step and do some proactive and configure the network dynamically there? So in the first release that we are releasing, it would provide visibility both in the, let's say the application performance as well as business policies, right? But for remediation, let's say if you want to uh, actually go and change the network policy, in the first release, we won't provide that via the chat ops. You'll still have to do that via the dashboard. But having said that, customers can still look at what are the business policies that may be associated uh, and they can see if they want to prioritize QoS for selective apps using chat ops. Uh, are there issues around, you know, access control or making sure the right folks uh, have access to this? How are you making sure that, you know, I've, I've got uh, good security around this? Paul Alto being a security company, we, we are uh, very sensitive around that. So when the chat ops is integrated as a cloud blade to our SD-WAN network, so customers, uh, they have to enable access uh both in terms of integration, so it's a byway integration. So from the SD-WAN network, we have to enable access to the customers and customers, they also have to ensure that whoever is on that communication channel, let's say for Microsoft chats, only those set of people will get access to this set of commands. 
Okay, so they can use, you know, I guess existing systems they've got in place to make sure that, you know, my help desk team and my network team and maybe my app team are, are the ones who can do this, but nobody else. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, because uh, there are scenarios, right? I mean, you may, for example, use chat ops to understand if there are any issues or major alarms going on, and you want to ensure that only the right set of people, they have access. Yep, absolutely. That is a big thing with apps is once you give people a login, then you basically don't have to spend your life auditing that. Whereas with a chat ops, you can actually say this chat ops can can cover these commands. And so in, in a certain sense, your security posture is radically different. Um, you can give away a lot of a lot of useful access without having to go deeply into some sort of security posture and audit and review cycle. Are there a set number of queries that I can make? And can I also construct my own queries? How does, how does that side work? Yeah, so uh, right now we support uh, many queries out of uh, box as part of a chat ops. We also support things like, uh, so for example, if you look at commands like, you know, show health alarms. So we do support, uh, you know, auto correction. We do support uh, fuzzy logic, but still it's a set of commands that are supported by the chat ops. Okay, so I do in some cases need to be uh, precise in what I'm typing in because it's not going to figure out what you really meant was this. Uh, mo- <laughs> it's not, most it's of not the- some AI language interpreter <laughs> that can, 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 can work out your intent. <laughs> like that's not how that we're not there yet, Drew. <laughs> Yeah, it will, it will understand. So for example, instead of, you know, show sites, if you write, uh, instead of S-I-T-E-S, you write S-T-E, right? So it will try to understand what is the best possible thing that the customer may be meaning and and interpret it that way. But let's say if it's totally something wacky, then not really. (laughs) Okay, so I can can misspell at least and still get some information back. Yes, absolutely. That's helpful. Yeah. Well, it depends on, so the chatbot sounds to me like it's not just a static, you know, fix this way type thing. This is actually a rather fluid sort of intelligent thing then. There's a bunch of stuff that you're doing. Am I able to then create my own queries as well to some extent if I have a specific query that I want to create? Is that something that's a, a future or is it here now? Yeah, so it's a two-step question, right? So the first part, uh, yes, it is natural language based. So we do have, you know, the natural language understanding to understand what you're typing. And then also for the response generation, so using natural language generation, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. The second part where the customers can create their own queries, it doesn't support that because Mm -hmm. we do have set of intents that the chatbot can understand. Now, how how you say that, right? it does offer you that flexibility of saying it differently, but still mm. it is a set of commands that it can interpret today. Okay. Yeah. So this is this intent. It, it works. It, the, the, the chat bot itself is sort of smart enough to take out your intent and say, well, I know what you're trying to ask because there's only a finite number of things you can ask about. So it has some of that capability. That's quite cool. I like that. It's uh, pretty cool. Our team has been pretty excited working on does this it, as well. It does feel like it's something that you have to see to believe, though. One of these things that sometimes we talk about things on podcasts and they're kind of dry and a bit hard to make a visual, but it sounds to me like it's one of those things, if you see it, you go like, oh, now I got it. Is that something that you see? Definitely. And, you know, we would love our customers to reach out to us and we can do, you know, demo for our customers as well as they can reach out to us in the usual ways and we can have more detailed sessions. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this does bring us to the end of the Tech Bytes. Uh, Sutapa, if folks want to get more information, where should they go? 
please go to Prisma SD1 product page at poloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash SD1 and access the chat ops solution brief. All right, that's paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash SD-WAN. We'll also have that link in the show notes plus a link to a solutions brief if you want more details. Thank you, Satapa, for joining us and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers, find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.